Hi, I'm Chris Vallotton from Bethel Church in Redding, California. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. We hope to really inspire and encourage you. On another note, we have the School of the Prophets coming up in August, and this school is going to be epic. We are doing the essentials online on an online school before the actual event, and then we're going to take a week to actually train up prophets and prophetesses who are actually transforming the world. It's going to be epic. We're going to talk about the political world, the world of government, the world of entertainment, the world of technology. We're just going to go after all the realms that week, and it is actually going to be really profound. So join Down on I and the team. You can get the information below. You can go to Bethel.com slash prophets and join us there. God bless you. Hope to see you at the School of the Prophets. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing in the room today, and we just bless this day. And we say, this is the day that you've made for us, and Lord, we pray that this day would be a new day. It'd be a new day. It wouldn't just be the next day. It'd be a new day. Lord, we pray that there'd be impartation today that people wouldn't even believe. Lord, you said, I got something to tell you that if if I showed you, you wouldn't even believe it. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would do a new thing today that you would do a thing that's so amazing that if you told us about it, we wouldn't even believe it. And Lord, I pray that you would send people out different than they came in, and it would actually be better than instead of worse. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, I received that from myself. All right. Did you like Graham? Graham got me in trouble. I was, I, we were having lunch, this is years ago, I, I was reminding him of this story, and actually he remembered it, I was surprised. We were having lunch, and it was Dano and I and some other extroverted person, and we were having a conversation, and Graham was listening, well, I don't know if he's really listening, but he was eating, and then out of the blue, it had nothing to do with our conversation, he just looked up and he said, I don't want to be desperate for God. <laughs> then he went back to eating. And I thought, well, you can't, you can't leave that alone. So I said, why don't you want to be desperate for God? He goes, well, desperate means I have a dysfunctional relationship with God. Think about it. If you said, I want to be desperate, I, I'd like to have, a, I'm desperate for a relationship with my dad. I'm like, oh, it sounded so good. So I was in a conference in New Zealand, and I remembered Graham's quote. And I don't know why, but it was like I opened with it. I don't want to be desperate for God. Because desperate means... I have a dysfunctional relationship with God. Well, we had just sang Desperate for You. You know that song? I'm desperate for you. I actually like the song. But then I think that's what stimulated my memory. Like, I don't want to be desperate for God. Anyway, I even blamed Graham for it. But they didn't ask me back, and they wrote me a really nasty letter. And I just said, I don't know. The prophet said, be desperate for God. Word of the Lord. Anyway, did we pray? Okay, I think we did. I think I'll do six more points. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how far I'll get. We'll just see. We'll probably have to extend the conference so I can finish my message. Developing a prophetic movement that reforms the world. And uh, maybe I'll stay. And so we talked about maybe I'll stay on task a little bit. But the first one that I shared was it engages culture. The attributes of a prophetic movement that actually transformed culture is it engages culture. And we talked about that. Do you remember that? Talked about that, that the kingdom is like leaven, that it makes the whole dough rise. And we talked about 
that the, the Jesus movement that I was saved in, the basic motto was come out and be separate. And we talked about how God is shifting that and that we're actually to be part of culture. And the second one uh, that, I, that I got to was that uh, the attributes of, uh, of a prophetic movement that transforms culture is that it's hopeful. And we talked about that we're the light of the world and we, we, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the hope of nations. And I gave you that little thing about the rats, which I thought was good. And we talked a little bit about, um, about the olive story. Um, and I want to just mention one thing, that because people uh, write often about this. You know, 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, talking about prophecy, says, but the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Edification to build up, exhortation to call near, and consolation means to comfort. And we often say, uh, one, of our, one of our mottos for the prophetic ministry is, we're looking for gold, we're not looking for dirt. And prophetic people often see dirt. Uh, the question isn't, do you see it? The question is, do you call it out? And um, so, you know, if we were, if we were um, gold mining and you found a rock, you're like, I found a rock. It's like, that's good, we're not looking for rocks. We're looking for gold. And so I like the, the owl metaphor because I think the owl is in... Is, is in the night, and, and it's, looking for, it's looking for the gold in the darkness. And uh, people often uh, point out that uh, God's not always so kind, and they point out stories like Ananias and Sapphira. And I want to talk about Ananias and Sapphira in a, in a few minutes, but one comment I want to make is that one of the things I think the church has been guilty of that I've tried to be really careful, we've tried to be really careful, is that we don't take an exception and make it a culture. Uh, Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, Joshua was told to go into the promised land and to kill everyone. Do you remember that? was a massive genocide. And yet there was one one person he was to keep alive. Do you remember who it was? Rahab. How many know Rahab was the exception? The rule was wipe out everybody. Ananias and Sapphira were the exception. And so we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, the, third, uh, the, the, the third attribute of a prophetic culture that actually reforms the world is insightful. It's insightful, and I want to talk about that. Um, if, you want, if you're taking notes or you're looking this up, uh, 1 Chronicles 12, 32. One of the most repeated scriptures in the last 10 years in, in conferences both that I have shared and that I've heard many, many, many people share long before I did, is this uh, verse in 1 Chronicles 12, 32. The sons of Issachar were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do in the times. And I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about understanding the times. Jesus um, talked about this in Matthew 16 with the apostle, I'm sorry, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, verse 1, he said... The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up testing Jesus, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? And um, I want to talk a little bit about this word, times, Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know how to tell the weather, but you don't know know how to tell what time it is in the spirit. And I want to ask a question, what time is it, and why does it matter? 
You know, um, there is two words in the Greek for the word time, and maybe you've heard this before. The first one is chronos, and we get our word chronology from it. Uh, it means a clock and a calendar, just like you would think. If I said to you, what time is it? You'd probably look at your watch and say, oh, it's about 2.15. And so there's the, there's the chronos time. The other word in the Greek for time is the word kairos. Um, it's actually not a spiritual word uh, in, in, its, in its roots. It's kind of like when, if I said to you, gosh, we had a, such a good time at the conference. I'm not talking about the length of time, what the date was, or how long the conference lasted, right? We have one word in our English language for the word time. So when I say we had a good time, you're not thinking, well, they had a wonderful watch, or what a beautiful calendar they had. We know that we're talking about that the, the experience we had at the conference was amazing. Yeah. English word, we just have one word for the word time. Are you with me? The Hebrews only have one word for the word time also. So, the, so when, we're, when we're looking at the Old Testament and we're talking about times, we have to determine whether that's chronos or kairos by definition, the same way we would have to know if it's chronos or kairos by definition in the English language because we just have one word, time. So when someone comes up to you and asks you what time it is, you're probably not thinking they're wondering if it's a kairos moment you're probably going to give them the time that's on your watch, right? Someone walks up to you and says, uh, can you give me the time? You're like, like it's the time for... <laughs> you know, you're going you're gonna to talk to them about chronos. If, if, they, if I asked you what time it was and you knew that the context had to do with what is God doing, you probably wouldn't tell me that it's about 2.20, you probably would click into a different mode, and you may say, I don't know, or you'd be thinking about what kind of experience are we having in this moment? Are, are you following me? And so the Greeks had these two words, which it's, some of the Greek language is beautiful, like they have four words for the word love, where we have pretty much one word. Uh, and so this is a really descriptive word, and um, it's used many, many times. The word, the chronos, um, I, I have it written down in my other notes, but I think it's used 86 times in the New Testament uh, that we're, where it's talking about an experience. But let me tell you about chronos when it's divine. Divine chronos is when divine favor meets divine opportunity. When divine favor meets divine opportunity. And, and I, I'd like to, uh, to talk to you about this uh, Isaiah 42.9. Behold the former things have come to pass, now I declare, help me, a new thing to you, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Uh, um, it was Christine Kane who came here three years ago, I think, on a Sunday morning. She, that was her text uh, message. Her message for her, the text for her message was this uh, Isaiah 42 verse, Isaiah 42, 9. And she made this point, God's not doing the next thing, God's doing a whole new thing. Yeah. And, the, and her message was about the fact that if God was doing the next thing, then the former thing would have something to do with the next thing. But because God's doing a whole new thing, how I many know where we've been has nothing to do with where we're going? And I, and I was so profound because I had taught on that verse several times but not picked up that new thing, God's doing a new thing. 
And Isaiah goes on to say, sing to the Lord a new song. And by the way, I'm sure he's talking about singing, but I believe that the scripture often has many dimensions. And I, I like to point out that the prophet Isaiah often uses metaphors, arise and shine, for your light has come. Uh, uh, Isaiah is famous for using these metaphors. And, and I'd like to also propose that he may not just be talking about singing, that when he's talking about God's doing a new thing, and the next verse is, sing to the Lord a new song, that he, I think he's using the word sing as a metaphor for thinking. In other words, Jesus said it like this, um, he said, John sang the dirge, which is the funeral song, and you didn't mourn. I played the flute, and you didn't dance. Point. He uses music to depict two epic seasons, or two epoch seasons. John sang the dirge. The, when the funeral song was playing, it's a metaphor. When you were supposed to be mourning... You didn't know what time it was. I came and played the flute, the wedding song, and you didn't dance. I doubt that John ever sang the dirge. Are you with me? So when Isaiah says, when Isaiah said, sing to the Lord, a new thing, God's doing a new thing, you're going to sing to the Lord a new song. I'm sure it probably has something to do with the new song, but I'd like to also propose that the new song has a new way of thinking. And I've illustrated this for years this way. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, I really do believe they crossed the Jordan River, but when they crossed the Jordan River in the first heaven, the visible kingdom, if you're unfamiliar with first, second, and third heaven, Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. How many know that's the first heaven, the visible kingdom, what you live in? Um, Ephesians chapter 6 says that there are principalities and powers, speaking of evil forces, in heavenly places. How many know there is no evil forces in God's heaven? This means yes? Okay, very good. And then Paul said, I knew a man, and he's actually speaking of himself, who went to the third heaven, and he saw things that were inexpressible. Are you with me? How many understand that you live in the first heaven, and you live in the third heaven? The question is, do you live from earth towards heaven or from heaven towards earth? Do you understand that the heavens are numbered for this reason? That we live in the first heaven and we live in the third heaven and the second heaven has power over the first heaven only if we don't take our rightful seat. Because Jesus put everything under our feet. How many know if you're in the third heaven and the second heaven is below you, how many know he put everything under your feet? principalities, powers, and every name that's ever been named, he put under our feet. Are you following me? So the question is, what heaven are you living from? The challenge is, is that if we're talking about a new thing, God's doing a new thing. If we live in the first heaven and don't take our rightful seat in the third heaven, we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Are you following me? then we don't hear the new song and we're doing a new thing in the old way. So when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, they really did in the first heaven cross the Jordan River. Everybody agree? I'm not saying it's a metaphor. I'm saying they really did cross the Jordan River. It says that the manna ceased, the cloud by day ceased, 
the fire by night ceased. The supernatural weather system and the supernatural food system ceased. And God said, welcome to the promised land. I don't know about you, but I think of the promised land as miracles. The miracles, those miracles happened in the wilderness. When they came in the promised land, God went from doing miracles to them to doing miracles through them. Now, do you know that these people who crossed the Jordan River, all of those people with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, they were all born in the wilderness? Because remember the first generation died off? So they had only known manna? Like they had only known manna. They ate manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They had only known supernatural food. There were some people that ate quail, but most of those people died in the wilderness because that was the first few years, right? (laughs) You remember that? Quail dinner? I should say something about that, but I don't because I have 35 minutes to finish point one. (laughs) When they crossed the Jordan River, the manna ceased. You can imagine that all you and I, although you and I know the end of the story, like we know the manna was supposed to cease, if you go back and read the story, God never told them the manna would cease, it just says the manna ceased. If you were 40 years or 35 years or 20 years in the wilderness and all you ever ate is manna, and the manna ceased, you probably don't know the manna is supposed to cease for good. Because remember, God required them to fast in the wilderness several times. So I think in... Well, they think they're on a seven-day fast. About day eight, they're on a 14-day fast. <laughs> I, I, I imagine like day 41, they're like, I think like Mary turns to Joel and says, you need to get a job. <laughs> and he says, what's a job? Because never, <laughs> that's why they put the book of job in the Bible. Laughter Some of you, you you have to come here just to understand the word of God. (laughs) My real point is, is that when they crossed the Jordan River, God did a new thing in them, in which what they learned in the wilderness, and I know there were some things they learned, trust God, all that, but what they learned in the wilderness was largely irrelevant for the promised land. They needed a new song. A new way of thinking. Are you with me? Some years ago, well, let me back up. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I I love this quote. I've shared it many times. I I don't know if the guy who wrote this quote is a a believer, an atheist, worked for Hitler. (laughs) I quote these amazing quotes and they go, do you know who that guy was? He's a Satanist. I'm like, oh, he got one quote right, you know? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Eric Hoffer wrote, in times, of, was he a bad guy? Uh, I don't know if he's a Christian. Okay, I'm sorry. If he's not a Christian, he probably got it from a Christian. It, <laughs> so, I think I got PTSD from Facebook. I can't preach a message without hearing some crazy person like, that person was an atheist. A person was a Satanist. I don't know. I mean, even the, even the demons knew that Jesus was the Christ when the Pharisees didn't, so even they got a quote right once in a while. Anyway, let's go on. So, <laughs> I wish I wouldn't have said that. But uh, 
Okay, if you'll shut up, I'll give you the quote. <laughs> In times of change, Eric Hopper said, learners inherit the earth. While the learned find themselves beautifully prepared, but for a world that no longer exists. I, I love that. It breaks that religious mindset. We always do it like this. You know, the famous, most famous song in the church is The Way We Were. Huh? Church is the only organization in the world that's trying to get back to something. Can you imagine technologists would be like, if we could just get back to the light bulb. I'm like, how about if we like move forward? How about if the... Uh, how about if progressives aren't actually a political party, but actually the truth about God's people? Anyway, just a thought I have. But uh, I woke up, uh, this is a few months ago, I woke up every morning for a week with this word in my mind, providence. Providence. I, I don't use that word. I, I, I earnestly didn't know what it meant. So I think on the Fifth day, I Googled it. Google's always right. And, uh, and providence means um, the foreseen care and guidance of God over creatures of the earth. Or God, especially when conceived as all-knowing, directing the universe. Um, I'm sorry, God, especially when conceived, or yeah, conceived as all-knowing directing the universe and the affairs of mankind with wise benevolence. And so I, I'm like, okay, that's interesting. What does, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like providence. I mean, I understand now what the word means, but why am I waking up every morning with this word providence in my mind? And uh, I, I had this uh, encounter. This was many years ago. I was probably around 25 years ago. And I was, I was in Weaverville, and we had all these prophetic words. We'd have these prophets come and they'd give us these prophetic words. Have you ever been in a season where your prophetic word is polar opposite of everything that's happened in your life and it continues to be that way for a season? It's like Joseph. I've imagined Joseph had this experience, right? Joseph has this dream. He's going to be the ruler of the world or a great leader or his, his, at least his brothers and sisters are going to bow down to him and his father and mother are going to bow down to him. And he has this dream that he's going to be a great world leader. And what's the next thing that happens to him? He ends up a slave. And then after that, he goes to jail. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, is there anyone else up there? <laughs> have the three of you talked about this? You know, you know, so have you ever had one of those seasons where God's prophesying north, but you're going south? And like every time you get another prophecy about north, you go further south? I was one, we were in one of those seasons where it's like, I, I don't want another prophecy. It feels like... I, I can live out the ones I have already. And, uh, and I, and I w went through this, this time where I'm like, you know what? I don't know if prophecy is accurate. I don't know if these prophecies are accurate. I, 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 I know I believe in prophecy because the Lord spoke to me when I was 15 audibly. But I, I don't know if I believe in these guys' prophecy. I don't know if I believe in the prophecies I've received. And I decided in my mind, I hadn't walked it out, but I had decided that I'm going to go north. I'm going to go south. Like, the prophecies are north, but I'm going south. I, I'm taking a different route. Like, this is crazy. I'm not doing this anymore. And I, and I, and, and I had this, and about the day after I decided to go with the flow, so to speak, I had this intense vision. And in the vision, I clearly saw God was walking intently down this path. 
And there was people, uh, a whole bunch of people on this path, and they were resisting him, much like a, a lineman in, in football. Like they were actually proactively standing in his way. And he was saying to them, get out of my way. And they were just standing, like protecting the path that the Lord was on. And he was grabbing them by the arm and throwing them like ragdolls. Just throwing them. And, uh, and then in the vision, after he threw several, 10, 15 people like that, in the vision, I was next. And I'm standing with, like everyone else, protecting the path. And I hear him say, get out of my way. Get out of my way. And as he gets closer, our eyes meet, and he looks right at me, and he says, get out of my way. And I'm thinking in the dream, I'm having this, like, should I, shouldn't I? And, and he reaches out to grab my arm to throw me as he threw the others. And I stepped aside. And without looking back, he said, now just follow. Just follow. Like, it's none of your business what I do. Just follow. <laughs> and uh, for me, it was actually really comforting. I'm like, okay, I don't have to figure out, like, why are my prophetic words that way, but my life is going that way. I don't have to figure this out. Like, you know when the Bible says that he's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? I think that's two different seasons. I think there's seasons where he's a lamp to my feet. Like, I don't know where we're going. <laughs> I just know who I'm with. And the whole season is about getting to know the tour guide, not getting to know the tour. And it feels like once I learn how to trust God with today, and, and I go, God, where am I going? He goes, you're going with me. Surely I'll be with you. I mean, I have all these words like, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you where we're going. <laughs> you ever have one of those seasons where God won't tell you where you're going, but he'll just tell you where you can't stay? Like Abraham and Sarah, they're in the Chaldeans, and God says, I want you to leave the Chaldeans. Okay, where are we going? To a place I will show you. <laughs> you have you ever got a prophetic word? It's not where you're going, but where you can't stay? Yeah. People are like, where are you going? I'm like, I have no idea. Why did you leave home? I know I can't stay there. That's a really weird season. But I believe there are times in our life where God's not interested in the journey. He's interested in the tour guide, in me learning to trust the tour guide. And it feels like when I get to that place where I learn to trust the tour guide, the Holy Spirit, my spirit guide. You have a spirit guide? I have a spirit guide too. His name's Holy. <laughs> Try that on Facebook. That doesn't go well either. <laughs> I like to do things just to stir people up. <laughs> just leave it up there and let them fight over it for like five days. The Holy Spirit is not, a, he's not... He's not a spirit guide. And someone else like, he guides us into all truth. Yes, but that's different than a spirit guide. Is it? No. I've only had one, so I wouldn't know what it's like to be directed by a different spirit. But some of these people do. But anyway. We just have these times in our life where we don't know where we're going because we're supposed to fall in love with the spirit guide more than our destiny. And I think when we come to grips with that, at least maybe it's different for all of us, but like that vision seems harsh, it really helped me. It put me at peace. I'm like, okay, it's not time for me to understand where we're going. 
It's just time for me to learn to trust the person I'm following. So I have this dream about providence, and I begin to have a dream every night about this thing of providence. And, um, I, and I won't tell you about all those because it would, it would take uh, longer than I have. But uh, about the fifth or sixth night, I have this phrase come to my mind. The iniquity of the Amorite is complete. And I remember that phrase. Bill taught on it years ago, maybe more than once, but I remember once in Weirville. And it's a story. It's God talking to Abraham. In fact, I think I can read these verses. It says, uh, in, this is in Genesis 15, verse 12, if you're taking notes. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation in whom they serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God's speaking of the future. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about this word providence in the context of this prophetic word because this is going to be, I'm going to probably finish with this, this idea. And, and, and the question I'm answering is, what time is it? What time is it? And I'm talking about time, Kairos. What time is it? I, I, um, I began to realize something that night. For example, it, Moses tried to deliver the people in the 306th year. Do you remember, Abraham got a prophetic declaration, your people will be in bondage for 400 years, and then when the iniquity of the Amorite is complete, I will let them go out. you remember this? I just read it to you. <laughs> Listen, you know, not the sharpest people in the world come to the prophetic conference, so you have to, like, <laughs> explain things to you all. <laughs> Sorry, that's my negative sense of humor. Moses tried to deliver the people in the 360th year. Do you remember this? And the people didn't understand. The sons of Israel didn't understand. And he went and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, why, did he not, why was he not able to deliver him, them in the 360th year? I'm sure there's, I've heard lots of messages. There's probably all true. Was Abraham, I'm sorry, was Moses the right guy? Was he, did he have the humility that he needed? There was lots of things going on. But I'd also propose that God said in the 400th year, in the 400th year, I will let the people go. When the iniquity of the Amorite was complete, I will let the people go. I, I want to talk about uh, this thing of sovereignty and free will. And, and uh, I, I don't know how theologically uh, accurate this is going to be from the standpoint of, of, of uh, you know, looking at it from a biblical standpoint. Uh, uh, but I'd like to suggest that God loves free will. He loves free will so much that he... People ask questions like, why is there murder? Why are there rapes? Why are there if God's in charge of the world, then if there's really a God, how many times have you heard this? If there's really a God, then why does he? And why doesn't he? And why does he? And why didn't he? Right? And I'd suggest that God is in charge, but he's not in control. If God was in control, there would be no murder. There'd be no molestations. There'd be none of that. 
But in order for God to be in control, he would have to take away your free will. And if he takes away your free will, you can't love because love requires free will. See, God can make you instinctively like him, but he can't make you instinctively love him because love is a choice. Are you with me? And God says, metaphorically speaking, over my dead body will I let you go to hell. But how many know you still have free will and you, your free will can override God's desire for your life? Because many people will step over his dead body. People like, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Are you kidding me? He died so you wouldn't go there. But how many know he still will not override your free will? Unless he will. And here's my point. I think that God allows free will, and I know this is going to sound maybe even humorous, until he doesn't. I think he lets man direct his own history. Let me give you an example. The Tower of Babel. How long did they build the Tower of Babel? I don't know. 10 years, 50 years, whatever. But at one point, they, they're building this tower to heaven for themselves. That's what the Bible says, for themselves. And, and, here's, and here's, the, here's the Genesis uh, depiction of God. God goes, let's go down and see if what we heard is really happening. <laughs> Those kind of verses just make me crazy. Like, you're supposed to be all-knowing. <laughs> However that, whatever that means. So God goes down and he sees that they're building this tower. This tower to heaven for themselves. And God goes, Wow. If we let this continue, nothing will be impossible to them. And so he goes, I know what we'll do. We'll confuse their language. <laughs> and they wake up the next morning, and everyone's speaking a different language, and nobody can understand each other, and he stops the tower building. <laughs> I don't know if you thought about that. Like, God lets free will happen until he doesn't. And then God goes, no, nah, we're not going to, nah, I don't, nah, I'm not letting you come up here in a tower. <laughs> God lets the Israelites be enslaved by the Egyptians, oppressed, beaten. You can imagine if you were an Egyptian. I mean, 400 years, you know. I mean, I don't know how long people lived back in those days, but let's say they lived to be 80 years. I mean, that's a lot of generations where you cry out to God, God, free me, and God doesn't free you. Like, it, it literally feels like the Egyptians are in charge of your life. And whatever the Egyptians do... The Egyptians are determining life for the Israelites for 400 years until God goes, no, nah, that's enough. And then he takes free will and he goes, does he, get, does, he, does he do away with free will? No, he just makes it impossible to not do what he wants. And he finally meets Moses at the bush. You remember the bush? Not George? And the bush is burning. <laughs> the bush is, I don't know. <laughs> you know, when, God, when people say, you know, they, they hear about people falling down or laughing in church, and they go, God would never do that. I'm like, have you read the Bible? You got people talking to bushes. You got other people flying through the air by their, by their head. You got naked prophets running around eating crap. And <laughs> Seriously, like, I, I can't just do any, like, you don't even know what God might do when you read the Bible. You get done, you're like, Gosh, I don't want to be a prophet. 
I mean, Jeremiah's like sleeping this way for three year, two, a year and a half and this way and he's cooking his food over dung because God told him to and another guy names his, he marries a prostitute because God tells him to and then names his children all the prostitute names. Can you imagine his neighbors like, weird. It's weird over there, you know? And then every time God fell on people, they ripped all their clothes off in the Old Testament and I'm like, Jeez, so glad I'm a New Testament prophet. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Aren't you glad you're a New Testament prophecy? I mean, when I was 20, I wanted to look good without a shirt, you know? At 40, I wanted to look good with a shirt. And when I turned 60, it's like so much easier to just turn the lights off before you go to bed, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> But God encounters Moses in this bush. You remember this bush. And literally, God says to Moses, I've heard about the oppression of my people. I've heard their outcries. And I'm like, yeah, for 400 years. And God says, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to release. My people are oppressed, and I'm going to release my people. I'm sending you. And Moses is like, you know, I'm not very, I can't talk. I'm not good at this. But the outcome is that Moses goes. And he encounters Pharaoh. And now we have sovereignty and free will on full display. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. God said it to Moses 600 years before he let the people go. There's coming a time your people are going to be in bondage. Remember, they weren't even in bondage yet. They're going to be in bondage. And when the iniquity of the Amorites complete, it's going to take 400 years. I'm going to free them. And Pharaoh goes, no, you ain't. And God goes, yes, I am. Does God take away Pharaoh's free will? Technically, no. But he does make it impossible for him to make any other choice. Are you with me? You're like, is there a reason why you're telling us this story? Yes, because I woke up in the middle of the night and the Lord said to me, the iniquity of the Amorite in America is complete. And I saw the mutilation of children in transgenderism and God said, the iniquity of the Amorite is complete. And I woke up bawling and the Lord said, now, I'm, this is the 400th year. This is the Tower of Babel. This is when I step in and I say to Pharaoh, you will let my people go. And God said, tell my people that we are in a new Kairos season and your job is to follow. Not to understand. It's to follow. And I began to understand some things. Like uh, I, I mentioned um, the Acts 4 story of, and Acts, 5, Acts 4 and 5 story of Ananias and Sapphira. They died for lying about how much they sold their property for. Now, l let's, let's face it, they lied. So, okay, we're all, we're all together. They shouldn't have lied. They sinned against God. We're all on the same page. But the question is why did they die? 
And you know who's interviewing Ananias and Sapphira about how much they sold their property for? Peter, the most famous liar in the whole Bible. <laughs> Peter didn't lie about how much he sold property for. He lied about knowing God four, three times when Jesus warned him that he would. I mean, let's give Ananias a little credit. They didn't know this was a governmental test. Peter knew. Jesus said, you're going to be tempted. And when you, after you fall and you rise again, strengthen your brothers. And he said, never mind me. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no, not me. You're talking about Thomas. Thomas doubts it. (laughs) I will die for you. Unlike the next morning, a little slave girl asked him. And he lies. And he lies, and he lies. And then the crow, chicken crows or however it goes, I don't know, something. (laughs) That's that chick thing. (laughs) I mean, have you ever thought about, like, are you serious? Like, they, they lied about how much they sold the property for because everyone else was giving everything and they, were, they acted like, they, let's say, they sold the property for 20000 and they only give 10000 of it, because, but they, they, wanted to, they wanted to behave like everyone else who was given everything, so they go, yeah, we only sold it for 10000 And they lied, and they died. I mean, have you ever lied? Some of you like lying, saying no. <laughs> Listen, if God killed everyone who lied, like Ananias and Sapphira, I, think, I don't think there'd be anybody in this room alive except for Bill and I. I'm really not sure about Bill. I mean, let's face it. There isn't a person in this room, if that was the standard, that would be alive in here. Not one of us. And I'd like to suggest that it's not that they lied that caused them to die, but when they lied. See, God went from Kronos to Kairos, and they didn't understand the season. They didn't understand that God was doing a work in which he was building the foundation of purity and holiness in his church, and they misjudged the time. How many of you know, no one else ever died for lying in the, in the Bible that we know of. Only Ananias and Sapphira. I'm saying you can't make a culture out of an exception. But you can learn that when God creates a Kairos moment, that you have to know what song is singing, because you sing in the wrong song, you end up dead. Are you with me? And I'm saying that the season has changed. Just recently, the seasons changed. And you, things are going to happen that don't happen in any other seasons. Divine acceleration is part of Kairos, divine Kairos moments. A great example, Nehemiah. The walls of Jerusalem were broke down 114 years. The people tried to rebuild them for 72 years. Nehemiah rebuilds them in 52 days. Do you know what the craziest part is? He did it with the same people who tried to do it for 72 years. I'm saying it's still miraculous, but it wouldn't be as miraculous if he brought in a construction team from outside and they're like, well, yeah, they got it done because these guys couldn't. 
The guys who tried to rebuild the walls for 72 years and couldn't do it, rebuilt the walls in 52 days, and the guy who's leading them never built anything. How many know acceleration happens in Cairo's seasons? There's questions we have to answer, and and I, I want to take you to one more story. You have just a few minutes. Joshua, I love the story of Joshua. My, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. And you know the story. God says, I'm going to be with him. I'm going to be with you as I was with Moses. And if I'm Joshua, like, that's not super encouraging because Moses failed. <laughs> I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. And by the way, Moses failed. Thank you. But Joshua ends up at Jericho. This is in the fifth chapter. Finally, this is the first city they're going to take. And Joshua is, you can imagine, he's terrified. And he gets there early in the morning, and he sees an angel. And the angel has a sword drawn. And he says to the angel, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel says, no. (laughs) This is where we're at, so I want you to listen close. Are you for us or against us? And the angel says, the question is, are you for me? He said, no, rather I've come as the captain of the Lord of hosts. And God moves from, sovereign, from free will to sovereignty. And he said, I will take it over from here. You follow me. I'm no longer with you. You're with me. And I believe that that angel, I don't know if it's the same angel, but the angel of the Lord is in front of us. And we're like, are you for the Republicans or for the Democrats? And the Lord's like, no. The question is, the answer is, I've taken over history. Just follow. And make sure you follow. Because if you don't follow, things happen in Cairo's seasons that don't happen in any other season. And the Lord told me that we will learn the fear of the Lord in this season. I was with a man, I won't tell you where, but I was with a man, um, this is uh, 14 years ago, and this man, uh, the Lord told me to fly to this, this particular city and tell the man that he was going to be governor of the state. And I had never done this before, and I went in and talked to Bill, and I had this dialogue with Bill, and Bill said, well, you know, if the Lord told you to do that, just fly there and meet with him and fly back. I was very nervous. And so, okay, so I got on a plane. I don't think the man knew that I flew there just to talk to him. And he's a man that we knew, like I had met him two or three times, so it wasn't a complete stranger, but definitely not a friend. And so uh, a businessman, very wealthy businessman. So I fly there, and, um, we're, and it, he, he gives me an hour. Again, I don't think he knew I flew there just for him, so he says, yeah, I can have an hour with you. And so he takes me to this deli, and and picks me up from the airport and takes me to this deli and, and we're sitting at the deli and we're making small talk and I'm super nervous. And I really had never done this thing before like this, prophetic stuff like really direct like this. And so about halfway through, I finally get it up nerve and I said, you know, the Lord sent me here to tell you 
that you're going to be the governor of your state. And I, I, I gave him all this word. He's just looking at me, and, and he, he gets, we, I kind of get done, and, and he goes, yeah, I don't want to go in politics. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a third-generation business guy, and I hate politics. I never want to go in politics. And he's going on and on about how he's never going to be in politics and can't stand politics. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Because I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. You know, bad prophetic word. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. So, so it, it's almost an hour's up, and he... He's, uh, he keeps looking at his watch because he has to go in an hour, and, 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 you know, and, I, and I'm like, oh, goodness, that was, that was horrible. I flew all the way here for that. It was ridiculous, you know? So it's a cafe, so he gets up to tell the, the waitress lady, can you bring us the bill? So, um, so while he gets up, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, you know, this is, it was so deflating. And, and, uh, and the Lord says to me while he gets, when he gets up, says, and tell him that after he becomes governor, he's going to become president of the United States. I'm like, have the three of you talked about this? (laughs) Did you notice he said he hates politics? Like, the test, he already failed the test. So, he comes back, and he's, you know, he's kind of, he's a little bit, like, anxious, like, trying to get the lady, the lady's busy, there's only one person, you know, bringing, serving us, and and he you know, keeps looking at his watch, and I'm super nervous. So he sits down, and, and I, said, uh, I said, I have one more part of the word for you. <laughs> and he looks at me, and he goes, okay. I said, the Lord said, after you become governor, you're going to be president of the United States. <laughs> you can imagine what that felt like. And so he said, oh, well, and he, and he tells me the story that he said, well, last year I went to a business conference in D.C., and my friend works at the White House, and he said, hey, the president's not at the White House. Would you like to take a tour of the White House? I could actually show you the Oval Office, which you don't normally get to see. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to see that. So he went to the White House. He's telling me the story. I went to the White House, and he, and he said he went in the Oval Office, and he said it was really cool, and he said, can I sit in the, in the president's chair? <laughs> and the guy goes, uh, I guess so. So he sits in the president's chair, and he said, he said out loud, I could do this. <laughs> and, and, he, and he said, he asked the guy, I remember this part, he goes, he asked the guy, where does the president go to the bathroom? And he takes him to this little, this little toilet, like way on the side, and he said, oh, he said, oh, I could do this. Where does the president sleep? Shows him where the president sleep. And so he leaves the, that White House, and then he said his friend gave him a book about the president. Uh, I'll tell you, it was President Bush uh, uh, during President Bush's um, presidency, uh, pres- number two Bush. And so he gives him a book of pres- uh, about President Bush, just as a memento that he had been there. And so he gets on the plane, and he turns the book over, and it's a picture of the president looking back like this, and he's got his dog. And he goes, I have a dog, the exact same dog. So he starts reading the book, and the dog's name is the same name of his dog. <laughs> and, so, and then he tells me, when I was eight years old, I was watching Humphrey uh, and Nixon debate on television at eight years old. And he said, I'm sitting there, and an audible voice says to me, pay close attention, for you shall be doing this someday soon. <laughs> in, someday in the future. So he, so he looks at me, and he goes, so yeah. He goes, 
but I don't want to be president of the United States. I hate politics. So he finally gets up and the lady has the bill and, and I'm like, oh, what do I do? And the Lord says, tell him I'm not asking him. <laughs> so he comes and he sits down and you know, the lady finally gets the bill there and it let, that all took like 15 minutes and I said, I, I have something more, <laughs> more thing to say to you. And, you know, and he's like trying to get out of there. And I said, I'm sorry, but the Lord told me to tell you he's not asking you. He's telling you. And the Lord said to tell you that if you don't become president, you'll mess up the divine future of the world. And he's not going to let you do that. So the Lord said, you think you have free will, but you do not. And the whole time I'm thinking, I don't know if this is scriptural, but... He looks at me, he is standing up at the time, he looks at me, he sits down, he gets on the phone, he cancels his day, we spend three hours together, and he looks at me and he goes, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and last year he became governor. So I wrote to him, I took a picture I had written in my journal about this guy and everything, and I took a picture of it, and I sent him it, and I said, good part one, part two's on the day, on the way. <laughs> And he sends me back, Valentin, I knew you were going to say that. And I want to finish with this. We're in a Kairos season. You have to adjust. If you live in Kronos right now, you might be in the way. You might be in the way. If you don't understand that God is putting people in our nation in office, President Obama, now President uh, Trump, and you're like, I don't like that guy, I don't like that. You better be careful, because I'd propose that, <laughs> the, <laughs> that the lot is cast, but the decision belongs to the Lord. We are in a season that we haven't probably been in in hundreds of years. And I'm like, be careful what you judge, because somebody might look like a Nebuchadnezzar on the outside, but on the inside, they might be the servant of God. You may not like the season you're in. You may be like, oh, I'm going to go this way. And I'm like, I'd be very careful about what you do right now. Because the main lesson we're going to learn is the fear of the Lord. The Lord is not letting the tower get built. I'm telling you, the people who you think in that are in charge of our nation's the climate of our nation are about to be unseated. And it's going to be a miracle, and it's going to happen all over America, and you're going to be surprised about the laws that do pass and the ones that don't and the judges that get appointed and the ones that don't and the presidents that become in office and the ones that don't because God is manipulating the chess pieces. This is a different season. And if you want to be prosperous in this season, the song's changed. And here's the goal. Just follow. Scrap your opinions right now and follow. Because this is a season you and I haven't known in our lifetime. Would you stand? I want to pray for you.
Bet you haven't heard that for a while. <laughs> Would you put your hand on your heart? Lord, I pray for every single person in here that their heart would burn for truth, that you would have, that they would have an Emmaus road connection with you. That even though they don't exactly know what's being said, like the two guys on the road to Emmaus, they said, wasn't our heart burning within us? And Lord, I pray that our hearts, when truth happens in this season, that whether our head understands it, that our heart would burn within us. And we'd know this is the way. And Lord, I pray for our president. I pray for our governors. I pray for our senators, for our Congress people, for all of the people in government right now. Lord, that they would get out of your way and follow. Lord, I pray that we'd get out of this season with the least amount of Ananias and Sapphira's. That literally, that this would be a prosperous season where you shift culture towards virtues and values and morality. Lord, I pray that you would destroy the bale of our country and that you would rise and the kingdom would rise in this season and that they would look back 100 years from now and they'd say, the whole shift, the great awakening happened in this season. And people began to wake up to God. They began to wake up to friendship. They began to wake up to morality. And nobility ruled the day. Lord, I pray we'd have another sexual revolution, but it would be directed by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Ben. Well, I really hope you enjoyed the message. I want to remind you about the School of the Prophets again in August. It's really going to be epic. Dan and I want to invite you to really have the time of your life there and really get trained and equipped specifically for your realm of culture. Join us, Bethel.com slash prophets. All the information is there. We hope to see you in August. God bless.